What happens to the communities that are victim of toxic pollution? Who cleans up Chernobyl or the communities wrecked by oil spills or lead poisoning? Too often, the answer is nobody. Once the news media runs to the next story, many communities are left to suffer, dying young and living with chronic illness. But not if the community is identified by Pure Earth. As the only global NGO dedicated to toxic pollution, they have made a difference, cleaning up over 110 projects in 24 countries over 20 years. Today's Changemaker Chat is with their founder and CEO, Richard Fuller. He is an engineer by training who was soon drawn to global environmental protection. He has worked inside companies benchmarking new recycling policies, then shifted to pollution to fix the public damage caused by bad corporate practice. He is an Australian living in the United States, running a now global NGO. In 2019, he was awarded an Advance Award, recognising the outstanding social impact he has had on global pollution issues. Today, we discuss what it means when an engineer becomes a changemaker and the radical pragmatism that can bring. We consider the art of change-making with communities and what it takes to solve an issue like pollution with people, not just for them. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. So thank you, Richard. It's really delightful to have you on the line today and welcome to to Changemakers. It's my pleasure to be here. Awesome. So I actually thought just to start off, it would be great for you to give us a sense, give our listeners a sense about what makes you and the work that you do, um, what makes you a changemaker, what makes the work that you do uh, make change in the world? Well, we focus on pollution. For the last 20 years, I've been building organizations and setting up programs that stop children from dying in low- and middle-income countries. So now I run uh, an organization called Pure Earth, which you can see, you know, pureearth.org, that operates in around 50 countries around the world, um, implementing different projects that take pollution out of people's uh, impact. So, you know, stopping kids from getting lead in their bodies or bad air pollution or the rest, and doing this in a way where local agencies are learning the skills and are able then to implement them in other places. Well, it sounds pretty so, important stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something that isn't addressed in most of these countries. So we find that uh, this work is somewhat solitary, at least from the international perspective, but there's such a need for it when you're overseas. You, you know, these, these folk are living in some really horrific places. And tell us about that need. Like, what is the scale of, of the challenge of these forms of toxic pollution? You know, it's um, difficult to do this in a quantitative fashion, but there is one toxin that we're looking at at the moment that looks like we can, we can assess how deep uh, it goes, and that's lead. So 
by the way, when we look broadly at pollution, we look at anything that has a significant health impact, especially for kids. So the range of toxins that worry us are the heavy metals, uh, lead, mercury, cadmium, chromium, arsenic, um, pesticides, um, different kinds of uh, organic compounds that are toxic, and then air pollution, you know, especially PM25, PM10, and the like. They're, they're the, they're, we focus specifically on trying to reduce their uh, levels in places where, where kids are so that we can measure and have a metric for how much they've, uh, they, they've benefited, how much longer life they'll have as a result of doing this sort of work. So lead, we all remember this when it was in gasoline, at least I do, and we know it got out of gasoline and it should no longer be an issue, but we're seeing it everywhere in low and middle income countries. And a meta-analysis that's going to come out soon with UNICEF will show that as many as one third of all children in the world have lead poisoning. Oh my God. Yeah. So they have lead at levels in their blood above the WHO safe level. I think that's extraordinary. And it's not coming from gasoline, lead in gasoline. It's coming from car batteries and recycling of car batteries. Uh-huh. And then sometimes using that lead to um, glaze your pots, to glaze pots, or sometimes it's added to different foods for different reasons as well. It's, it's, it's everywhere. The more we look, the more we find it. So if you think a third of all the kids in the world, and look, this is, this is still you know pending final approvals, this piece of research, but it will be done quite soon. Um, that means that uh, a third of all the people in the world, because they all grow up, they've lost between four and five IQ points on average. They've lost probably around a year of life expectancy because lead causes cardiovascular disease. And all of those people are uh, somewhere between 30 and 50% more likely to be invo- involved in violent crime. So these are you know, real direct measurable outcomes from having this much of just one toxin out there in the world. And it's all in low and middle income countries. There's very little of this in Australia or in the US. Yeah, it used to be, and the, and it was cleared, but it's not being cleared in those low and middle income countries. That's, that's right. There's still a few hotspots left over. There's still a Port Perry in South Australia. So we've got you know a few lead problems going around, but generally we've dealt with them. We've had the money and the interest, and we've dealt with the toxic issues in the US and Australia. I mean, look, this is ex- it's extraordinary work that you do, and I, I'm not only extraordinary in terms of um, solving problems like this, like. Uh, the lead poisoning of our children across the world and other toxic pollution. But also I, I think that part of it is what, what's extraordinary is that you found this problem in the first place, that you were able to discover this problem and then ch- choose to work on it and then scale out a solution on it. And I want to spend a little time for our listeners to understand how you got into this kind of work, how you started to make decisions to eventually work on and build a large organisation dedicated to the question of toxic pollution. So if you were to, you know, step back and look at your long life, although I'm not suggesting that you've, um, it's that long, but, you know, long-ish, uh, lots of experience <laughs> and wisdom. If you were to look back at the, the people, the teachers, the things that have driven you, I know early on you particularly had an interest in environmental protection. I'm wondering 
where did where did your first passions for these kind of issues for these this kind of work come from? You know, it started in uni when I was at Melbourne University and some friends. We all decided we'd do some tree planting and started a, a nonprofit called the Tree Project in Melbourne. And it was enormous amount of fun and very exciting. And we found that we could actually, you know, really uh, do something you can go and see, actually do something physical. So I had a kind of moment after perhaps 10 years after that, after I'd been working and had a successful few years at IBM, where I thought, you know, what is it that life's worth doing? It's a short amount of time. And what should I do with my life? And I didn't, you know, get all fancy about this. I just sat and thought, what I'd really like to do is I'd like to live in a foreign country and and learn a foreign language. I thought I wanted to go skiing on the West Coast of the US and enjoy the Rockies for a while. Um, And then I thought I wanted to have some way of making a difference at a level that was beyond those people that I met at some kind of a bigger level than that. And then the last thing I thought was I really wanted to see what was happening in the rainforests in Brazil. It was all Chico Mendes had just died and there was a lot of drama around burning rainforests. It's it's obviously it's back again, but it was pretty busy around that time. So um, I wrote them down and then I thought to heck with it and sold my house and bought a ticket and went skiing for a while and then went to Brazil. Well, this is huge, right? This is not what your average, you know, I'm assuming late 20-year-old successful engineer working for a digital company does. Can can you explain to us more about that context that saw this moment for you as such a turning point in in your life? I don't know if I can. It just, you know, didn't have family, there was no obligations. It looked like it was a good time to try something. I knew I was safe if I came back, there'd always be work, I would be able to do stuff regardless. And it looked interesting. It really is just a curious curiosity more than anything else. There wasn't some big epiphany, it was, you know, let let it let it have a shot. Why not? What have I got to lose? That sort of feeling. Was there anyone yeah. encouraging you? Like, was there anyone in your life who 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 thought this was a good idea? Who mentored you? Who encouraged well, you? Well, I, I did have a few a few mentors, but they weren't. No one was particularly enthusiastic about this idea of disappearing, <laughs> going to the going Amazon the rainforest. Yeah, yeah. They, but you know, they weren't trying to hold me back. They were, you know, willing to see how it led and what would happen. Yeah, okay, wow. Yeah. So tell us what happened. So you got your plane ticket, you you did some skiing, but then then what happened? Well, I spent then uh, a bit of time in New York and Washington meeting with people who knew what was happening in Brazil, and then I went into the rainforest, and I spent um, about a year there, um, really deep in the forest, traveling on boats up and down. And I worked with the national government there and the UN Environment Programme, kind of in a loose fashion to become a kind of a consultant putting together plans for national parks. And it turned out that's really what they needed. They really needed just someone to do the legwork of saying this is a good area to declare a park, you know, with crown land that people could go in and deforest and then own. But if it's declared a park, then it would be halted, it would be stopped. So I 
I put a ring of parks together around an area that's being deforested now, and they're, they're still there. They've held. And, um, you know, was traveled. I, I met the, uh, the then president, President Sarney, for breakfast one morning. It was all quite uh, surreal, the whole mm-hmm. process. And then after a year or so, the local the local guys in the rainforest, uh, the kind of the local mafia, the guys who are running the cattle farms and things like that, they found out that this you know young Australian with a UN business card was was doing this work, and they uh, they put a, a a gunman after me. Oh! So I but I scarped out of there and came back to New York as quickly as I could. Oh my God! You were chased out of the Amazon by I was chased out an yeah. assassin. Yeah, yeah. So that was all a bit dramatic and. What was the key and, lesson uh, that you learned from that experience, that very dramatic experience? Uh, carry extra underwear. <laughs> it's just terrifying. Yeah, I was just terrifying. You know, I, oh I'm not God. a brave person by nature, and the thought that this would, you know, need a lot of bravery was was really beyond me. But, you know, then I ended up back in New York, and by this time I was penniless. I'd spent all of the earnings I'd had from IBM. But I really didn't want to go back to Melbourne. And, uh, and so I decided to see what I could do to make a go of it. And then I started doing different businesses. So I'd given up now the philanthropic kind of side of work. And now I decided I would keep working on environment but do it from a business perspective. So I started a company that was selling recycled paper. And that slowly worked, but not particularly well. And then I started a company that was providing corporate advice on how to be sustainable for large corporations, especially for recycling programs and for energy efficiency. And uh, that one did well and took off. And I grew it now. It's now the largest firm like that in in the east part of the, the U.S. And, uh, and it... It uh, has done well enough for me now to be able to stop being a corporate guy and go back into the nonprofit world. So about Mm. 10 years ago, I turned that company over to management. They're running it better than I was. And I'm now back doing starting another uh, philanthropic endeavor. Yeah. And so just before we get to 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 pure earth i'm i'm interested in it's interesting that you've jumped from the not for profit to the corporate and the not for profit again T- tell me what because there are lots of insights that come from those transitions uh, i'm sure are there any that stand out that you've had the benefit of learning that you know i imagine that many of our, many of our listeners haven't had that those transitions jumping between successful corporate and successful not for profit does anything did anything stand out from your time at at um working in sustainability with corporations that, that you've took with you into the not-for-profit world that you think is really key? A few things that have shown up there, when you look at how well corporations deal with sustainability, there is a strong and honest commitment from companies to do as well as they can within their own field of operations. And, uh, you know, I really liked and still do a lot of the people who are trying to make as minimal a footprint as is possible within the confines of what their businesses are supposed to be doing. So there is there is an intent to do well there. There are often it's easier to run a business and make money than it is to run a nonprofit. 
um, it's I would say it's about five times harder to develop a nonprofit and make it successful. And everyone knows to start a business, you know, your chances of being successful are, are pretty slim. It's usually only about twenty percent of businesses that succeed after the first two years. So nonprofits are much harder. So the entrepreneurs who are capable of starting nonprofits, they're very hardy people. They're very capable of uh, handling rejection. And when they succeed, they're, they're, they're really going to be terrific people to be around. But I think I, what I liked about the, my path was I never required that the nonprofit, Pure Earth, be responsible for supporting my family and my kids' education and the rest of it. I had enough from other sources by that point that I didn't have to be concerned about that. And that made a huge difference to me being able to drive the organization forward. Mm. Yeah, because resources, particularly in the early years of a not-for-profit, are everything, yeah, the money and the resources to make it happen and where they come from. Mm. Yeah, any years, it's impossible. It's very, very difficult raising money. It's terribly competitive. Yeah. So was there, do you remember the moment um, where you decided that you were going to step away from, from the sustainability work and jump into the establishment of, of what became Pure Earth? Do you, was there a, just like this electrifying moment in Melbourne where you decided that you were going to do something mad captain ski then go and <laughs> learn another language? Was there a moment similarly with, with the decision to, to set up Pure Earth to focus on environmental intervention to look particularly at toxic pollution? You know, it was the boredom of getting my golf game under 10, oh. handicap. And, you know, I like I was like trying really hard and playing twice a week and uh, remember of one of those fancy golf clubs and a nice house on the lake. And and it was like, this is, uh, this sucks. This is not fun. I don't want to pursue this any further so it was uh okay so what what's the need at that point the question was what's the need what could i do in the 40 odd plus years that are left me that would be that would be interesting and useful and productive so when i when i chose that what i did then was i brought a lot of people who i knew had a global vision about them and we um, had a couple of weekends of drinking a lot of wine, but really talking about where were the needs in the world. If you were thinking about the global environment, where were the gaps? Where were things not addressed? And we looked at breaking the world into um, the rich and the poor, and then breaking it into brown, blue, and green. So green biodiversity, blue oceans, brown pollution. We put another one in with climate as well and then look to see where there were efforts and whether they were being adequate to have any chance of being successful in all of those different categories. And the one thing that just jumped out every time we went through this was no one was dealing with pollution, toxics in uh, the poorer countries. It was just not there. It wasn't on anyone's radar. None of the large bilateral agencies not AusAid, not USAID, not the European Commission. No one was doing anything about pollution and its impact. And this is before plastics. You know, plastics is great, but it's it's not toxic, but it's pollution. So I love it. And so we that was where I decided we should try and try and do something. So I put the original seed capital into it and convinced a few friends and built a board from a few of my neighbors and 
got a few $50,000 grants and then a hundred thousand grant and, and hired a couple of good people. And then finally got one of the, the European commission to give us a half million dollar grant. And, uh, and then started off from there. Wow, what you just yeah, what you just what that's really interesting. And there's a few people that I've interviewed who've come at their their work at this like work similar to yours from bringing interesting people together to have conversations on the weekend to really nut this out, like setting up their own war room or kitchen cabinet to solve problems. It's interesting how that I think is a, a really important strategy about how people make change. But what strikes me about it also is that it's a real head approach to a problem. I'm wondering if there was also any personal experiences that you had had with the question of toxics or whether you then, after making this realisation, went to places that had experience of toxics. Whether you, I guess whether you had a heart, um, a, a heart pull to this issue as well. That's a nice question to ask. One of my best friends and in Australia, um, Peter Hosking and I, um, he was also working with me in New York at this time. We went and we visited uh, four different countries and spent a couple of weeks in each trying to understand what was happening and where were the gaps in how countries were dealing with pollution. This was now very broad pollution, looking at sanitation, looking at whether there were NGOs who were trying to do something whether there were regulations and laws in place, what was happening with toxics and, and health issues, kind of like trying to get a, a, a handle on, on how each of these four countries was Cambodia, Thailand, Tanzania, and uh, Zambia, these four, and wanted to get a sense of, you know, where were the gaps, what needed to happen, what, was, what, what could we do? And we had also small grants to be able to give out to help different countries try on doing different things to see what would work. So, and doing that, we went out into some really horrible shithole parts of the world, you know, not anywhere that we used to go as tourists and going down into the places where industry set up and there are just, you know, tens of thousands of people and kids living around just horrible dumps, piles and living off the scraps of really badly run businesses. And uh, it's, it's, it's very unpleasant to be there. It's, it's very, very unnerving. And uh, you don't really go there without feeling ill yourself and then feeling that you've got to do something about it. So anyway, so we, having done that, done that work, as we slowly kind of did these assessments, more and more we'd get to how sick people were and how the health issue drives this so significantly, and that's what—that's how it kind of turned into the, the shape of the organisation right now. Yeah, wow. And so, tell us what what does Pure Earth do? So we go into very toxic neighbourhoods, sometimes whole cities, and we work out a solution that will mitigate those toxins and get them out of the place. It usually starts with stopping whoever it is that's producing them from producing them. One of the lesser known realities of this is it's never a big uh, Fortune 500 company who's there. Mo very often the toxins are coming uh, are there because 
small artisanal activities, people just trying to make a living. They're doing it in very toxic, toxic ways. So it's often helping these communities to handle their own industriousness in a way that, that doesn't kill their children. So there's a lot of training work that will go on. We'll bring in technical experts that know how to help change those industries. And then we'll help them to clean up the mess that's left behind. Once we no longer can see that there's any more exposures going on, we'll help to clean up the mess that's behind and measure you know, before and after with kids and health assessments. And a lot of universities are involved with us. And, uh, and then move on to the next one. We've done about 110 of these. Yeah, it's extraordinary. One of the questions I want to ask you about is is actually about this process, about about how you make change. Because what I'm hearing in your description is that there is the building of a partnership between Pure Earth and a community about around pollution and and it's in, in so sort of the industries that are working in those communities. And there's a whole process of learning and education and work. And I wanted to, I guess I wanted you to talk about a little bit more from my work as an organiser. I'm, I'm really aware that there are lots of different ways in which that kind of change can occur. You know, you can, you can make change for communities, you can make change with communities. And they're, even though they both achieve outcomes, like they could both remove pollution or you could, you know, whatever social change issue that you're wanting to achieve, how you do it is critical for determining how long the change lasts. Can you tell us a little bit about how Pure Earth works with the, with the communities it works with? Yeah, our, our experience here is that the less the requirement that the organisation is involved in the process, the better it is. So the more we can there just providing support and encouragement and assistance and uh, education and let local stakeholders take on the challenge and do the work, the much better it is. So, you know, look, I think this is true even in the process of any sort of change at any sort of level. What you have to do is you have to build a network of people around you who believe in the same mission and can see ways where they can begin to be productive within that mission. And that's when you start to see change happen at a kind of more systemic level. So, you know, the practically the way that shows up for us is when we go into a community, we're only there having been invited by uh, the local uh, governments and mayors and CSOs and, and the rest. And we'll form a stakeholders group as the first part and um, have them sit down and bring a technical team who can say, here is the solution, here is how this would work. And how can you do this work? How can we help you to do this work? And then follow that process through with them over, over the next period of time. So it has to be done in that kind of collaborative, networked way. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, that's utterly true of my experience because otherwise yeah. things fall apart after you leave if they're dependent on you when they start. <laughs> and we don't want that for them to, to for change to be able to last. I'm wondering yeah. if I could ask you to think about the most memorable intervention that you've been a part of. I mean, Pure Earth has been around for a long time. You, there's, you've got dozens and dozens, of, well, 110 stories as you describe them. Can you think of a memorable intervention and just paint a picture for us about, you know, what it was like when you started and how it shifted? I can give you a couple of this, but a lot of these are in, in my book. I don't know if you 
No, but I, promote I wrote, the book, Richard. Promote I, the book. <laughs> I should. It's, it's the Brown Agenda, and it's on Amazon, and you can get it audio as well as you know, uh, digitally downloaded. So I'll tell you two stories. One that's one that's in the book, the beginning of it, which is kind of, was kind of crazy and dramatic. So there's a place in eastern Ukraine called Horlovka. It's now controlled by the Russians. It's in that part of Ukraine that's been taken over by Putin. But this place had an abandoned factory there that was making TNT for the explosives industry. This place had a, a factory um, that had been abandoned. The Soviets used to make TNT there, but it had been shut down about 10 years earlier. And I had a team of people from the former Soviet Union that, that would we were teaching how to do site assessments, how to go out and discover if something was acutely toxic and would be, you know, killing kids or not. And there's a methodology to do that that we we put together and we run workshops all over the place. And I was running one of those early workshops. And it was freezing cold and we were on the edge of a cliff looking down into this old abandoned mine where they were mining mercury. So we were looking for, you know, evidence of still toxic mercury uh, around this place. So we were looking for mercury, but these two black SUVs pulled up and uh, this Russian guy yelled yelled out the window, come here in Russian. So our Russian guy went across and started talking. And then he came back to the group and said, Richard, you must go with them. And I said, how could that be? Where would I go? He said, you have to. They're the government. You have to. So we both went and the this guy in a, you know, Big Russian furry hat, round, ruddy face, looks at me and says, get in. And I'm like, you know, I just thought this is, is this the same as Brazil? Am I being finally being caught up for my sins here? So I got in the car and my Russian guy and him and two other people started talking very loud, very fast in Russian. I couldn't follow it. And finally, my translator, Vladimir, called, turned to me and he said, don't worry, Rich, it's fine. They don't want to do anything to us. They need our help. And he drove us to this factory that had been abandoned that was making TNT. So so we, we went into this factory and went inside, and the, the chap, Ira May, who was with the U.S. Army um, technical team, he looked at these bags of stuff that was spilling everywhere, and he just said, we have to get out of here now. And the factory was had been making mononitrochlorobenzene, this MNCB material, and it would then get turned into TNT, or it could also get turned into making nerve gas. It was, you know, WW2 factory. And when the, when the supply, when TNT was no longer being requested by the Soviet Union, these, this factory in the Ukraine just kept making the, the precursor, and they made hundreds of tons of it when they didn't have any place to store it. And it's toxic enough that four grams will kill uh, a human, an adult. So there was just tons and tons of this toxic stuff blowing all through the factory and ready to, you know, destroy the town if it ever uh, kind of would blow up into the air. And then it would float down into the town of 200,000 people and kill half of them within the next, you know, 20 minutes or so. It was extremely toxic potential here. So so we backed out and I put together a team of experts, including folks from Dow Chemical and uh, you know companies that are supposed to be 
the evil empire that actually showed up and did some really great stuff and brought in a bunch of uh, technical experts and, and hired a lot of former Russian Soviet uh, soldiers, trained them in proper protective gear, and we packaged up all this material and shipped it to a uh, incinerator, a high-tech incinerator in Germany, where it was destroyed for free by one of the big uh, multinationals as well. And the place place became safe. But uh, that was a pretty crazy thing. That was a crazy place. Yeah, and the story, that's super crazy. <laughs> Don't get me yeah. wrong. That is definitely up there on yeah. the crazy list. But I also what I hear in the story is the, is how you were able to solve that crisis using a whole bunch of unusual alliances, bringing in people who, if you had been dogmatic or not pragmatic, you might have not thought of them as partners, but you were being pragmatic, you were in a crisis, and you were able to draw a whole bunch of people in to help with the solution. Yeah, I reckon that's that's critical. Yeah, there's no need to be aligned with any particular, you know, political ideologies or any anything in those matters. It's just about how do you go about fixing it. This is the engineer's mentality. You know, the geeks do inherit the earth. These are the people that um, know how to make things happen and, and fix things. And, uh, and, you know, the more the merrier. I love it. I love it. The engineer's um, mentality is a pragmatic mentality. <laughs> we need more engineers yeah. in social change. <laughs> we need engineers everywhere. You know, it's engineers that have created Microsoft that have help Gates to go out and save, uh, you know, tens of millions of people from with vaccines and all the rest of it. It's engineers are the guys who forget about all the drama and sturm and drang and just get things done. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you as an engineer have become a change maker and abandoned your golfing career in order to be able to to, to work in the, with the likes of those wanting to make the world a better place. My last question for you is, is just to reflect on the lessons that you've learned in your time across so many different planes in the profit and not-for-profit world, <laughs> from your planting tree <laughs> organisation from when you are in university onwards. Are there any key lessons that stick with you about what it takes to make powerful change? I would think that persistence really is really important. The majority of endeavors, the majority of proposals that are written, the majority of attempts to create, you know, a workable coalition, they fail. And so you just have to kind of be stubborn and pig-headed about it and keep trying. And it does get there. It just, you just, you know, trying once and then having it fail is fantastic because that means you're one less until it works. That and then the other thing that I know works well is um, just getting some terrific like-minded people who can see and help and develop the, the vision, help and develop you know, what you want to see the world look like. And having a great group of people who, who are turned on by that, it really makes life just so bearable. It's yeah. really great. The power Wonderful. of a great team. Super, super, super. I love I love the people that I work with and and they are uh, you know, they're doing ninety-nine percent of the work. I you just can't imagine any kind of change possible without all these fantastic people with who are there. It's been so spectacular to talk with you, Richard. Congratulations as well on your your advance award for a social impact. I mean, what an extraordinary recognition for lots of extraordinary work that you've done. And it's been so delightful that we've been able to 
provide a space where you could share both your life story and your your life lessons with the Changemaker audience. So thank you so much for your time. Amanda, it's been lovely chatting with you. Yeah, awesome. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating. Our audio producer is Jules Walker. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We are also supported by the Organising Cities Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories.